Find your own heart, your own body here present in worship together. We're going to move into a time of teaching now. And I am I'm really excited about today. I told the 10 o'clock huddle live, cried now no less than three times this morning in just reviewing what it is I get to share today. This is the last teaching and sermon on this long focus we've had on these kind of like core theological concepts uh, of our faith together. And these are born out of my own uh, process and project of essay writing uh, with our American Baptist Church uh, regional group as I'm thinking constructively with them uh, through this ordination recognition process, okay? So this Sunday, we're going to talk about eschatology, which is a very fancy word that uh, means not a ton to a lot of people. So let me tell you really quickly what it means, and then we will jump in. Eschatology is a look at last things or end times or where things are headed. Uh, and so when I say that, a lot of us immediately are pivoting to the last Google search we did on the book of Revelation or on the rapture or on Kirk Cameron Right? You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about? With the movies, the Left Behind movies? Um, I'm, I'm going to talk about that a little bit in the middle. First, what I want to do today, and I'm going to give you a roadmap so you can follow, because we're going to move fairly quickly in a minute, is uh, we're going to talk for a, the moment about why the Lord's Prayer, and particularly the middle line of the Lord's Prayer, which really sits in the midst of our congregational life, why it is so important when we talk about eschatology. Uh, so that's where we're going to start, with like a holistic vision of where God is taking creation. Uh, and time, and humanity. And then we're going to sort of look at why this is such a hard concept to understand based on popular understandings of eschatology. And I am going to poke fun at a lot of things, including things that I've held near and dear across my life. So there's going to be something at some point that gets implicated that you're like, but that's my favorite X, Y, or Z, and that's okay. Um, we're going to lean heavily into the scriptures throughout the day, which is always a good place to lean. Uh, and then at the end, we're going to try to join up the beginning and where God is taking things and look through the entirety of scripture in, you know, like 30 or 40 minutes or, or less. So that's where we're going together. Uh, if you have been with us for any length of time, you'll remember like a year ago or so we preached through the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Matthew uh, chapter 5, 6, and 7. It's one of my favorite uh, passages in the Bible. Everybody's got their own favorite passages, and typically whatever your favorite is is kind of how you see the rest of the scriptures. Uh, you have what we would call like a lens, a scriptural lens with which you interpret other parts of the Bible. It's super important that you know what yours is. Uh, for a lot of folks in our congregation here, or in like the Baptist tradition, the Sermon on the Mount has been really, really central. It's this big sermon that Jesus gives in the book of Matthew. Matthew's the first book in the New Testament. And in the center of the Sermon on the Mount is the Lord's Prayer. Now, who in here knows the Lord's Prayer by heart? Show of hands. Fantastic. Look at all these Christians. I didn't mean it to sound that way. <laughs> uh, look at all these good church folks. Sermon on the Mount. Middle of the sermon is the Lord's Prayer, is the way that I kind of think about this. And then in the middle of the Lord's Prayer is a verse that I want to focus on today, this little clause. Because I think it holds kind of the clue to the tension of what it means to think about the end of all things. So this is the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the center. 
on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That is the entirety of what is likely the like sort of original reading of the Lord's Prayer. Now we all say at the end of the Lord's Prayer, for thine is the kingdom and the and the forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. And that's most likely something that sort of folded into that tradition over time and became part of the early church's recitation of the Lord's Prayer. The prayer is this beautiful, like, sort of compacted theology. And if you've been here, we've talked about this pretty extensively, but let me just remind you what we're looking at here. The Lord's Prayer is really broken up into, like, two big uh, realms, ideas, and then in the middle is this hinge that connects them. So the first part of the prayer talks about God's realm. Our Father in heaven, Pater Hemon Ha and Tois Uranois, Hagias Deto Ta'alamasu, El Feto Te Thelimasu, Hosen Urano Kapiges. This beginning part is what is happening in God's space, reality. What we would call the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And where that space is, the prayer is this set of imperatives. God, make your name hallowed. Make your kingdom present. That your will would be enacted. All of these are imperative verbs. Then you get this middle clause. As in heaven, so also on earth. So you've, you're up here, right? You're up here. I'm going to go ahead and use spatial understandings for God's space and our space. I don't actually like the idea that God is up and we are down. Because it reinforces some things that are problematic. We'll talk about it in a little bit. But it's always helpful. So, uh, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. This is the first part of the prayer. As in heaven... And this is like Jesus is taking the goods from where God is. Look, I got this basket of beautiful ideas, right? Walking with Jesus as in heaven, so also on earth. And then we move into our realm. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. It's a beautiful little set of verses about how we're supposed to understand our posture in relationship to God's posture. And there's this connection in the middle that has become kind of like a thesis statement for how I understand the scriptures in their entirety. Now, we read it on earth as it is in heaven, outside. We've had for a long time on our outfacing banners in Pasadena as it is in heaven. It's on our bags. It's kind of like on a lot of our stuff. Uh, this is the Greek, hos in urano kai epi uh, It's important that I show you once more why the Greek is rendered like it is, because it's super important for the flow of the thing. It's actually as in heaven, hos in urano, as in heaven, also on earth. It perfectly works to lead us from the space where God is to the space where we are. And then it gives us this image. This is the image that's always in my head when I come to scripture. There is this space, this realm where God is active, where things are flowing like they should flow according to God's design and plan and grace and love and joy. And that energy, it flows into the space where we are in our hopes and dreams and struggles and pains and sin and brokenness. This is the pitch of scripture, as I understand it. It's why I believe that Jesus places this phrase at the very center of what I would say is one of his central teachings. 
So if you hear nothing else today, hear or see this. When we talked about sin a few weeks back, we talked about how this feels more like our reality. That actually the realm where God is is not approximated at all to the realm where we are. And in fact, we experience our lives more in the separation between where God is and where we are than in any kind of union between those two spaces. Now, here's what happens when this becomes our dominant understanding of everything. Is after a while, you start to think like, this isn't simply an evidence of how things are wrong. This is just how things are. And then you start to shift theology to make sense of why things are like this. And the picture very quickly changes because you have to start to figure out a convenient way to tell the good news that can make sense of this in a world where we can't imagine this being healed. So you get something that I would say is uh, maybe the most dangerous central part of bad theology. And let's be fair, like part of what we're doing here is teaching and learning together good theology, good God talk, a very deep an intelligible reading of our lives in the scripture in conversation. So this convenient gospel, I would say it's like a, like a new gospel or a not scripture gospel. It looks like this. And, and, and I will say now here, I'm finding myself deeply inside of this story. Do, do y'all recognize this picture? Maybe not the way it's drawn, but the ideas behind it. I call this like lifeboat theology or evacuation theology, which is that, uh, y'all, this is all going to burn. And hopefully, hopefully we all believing the right things and we've all found the right lifeboat so that God will get us off of this spaceship before it's too late. It's the kind of thing where if you're approached by somebody on the street and they say like, if you died today, do you know of 100% certainty where you would go? By the way, if anyone answers that question with 100% certainty, um, I'm confused and concerned. Uh, because this, everything about the Bible talks about that passage being the big mystery. We see now through a mirror, cloudily, dimly. One day we'll see in full. However, this is the way I've mostly understood what God is up to in Christ. That there is this realm called the realm of heaven, which is our final destiny. And then there is this temporary, temporal, uh, at some point disposable realm that we call this world. And that this world is like a holding container for all the things that need to happen right now in time. But at some point we're going to enter into eternity. And when we do, we will be rescued out of this space. Not just this space, we get rescued out of this body. Right? All of the sudden, anything that is material... Anything that is of this earth, flesh and blood and dirt and soil, it is full of what we would call entropy, right? That things are just breaking down. And God's grand design and plan is that the insides of us, the spirit part of us, gets yanked out and tossed up into heaven right at the last second. And then all of this is gone. This is why, actually, (laughs) there's one... uh, quote I came across this week that said Christians typically don't show up to church to like believe and speak heresies we just show up to church to sing them you will likely find most of this understanding of this kind of like convenient gospel inside certain songs um, of this 
movement of spirit out of material reality. Okay. Everybody sufficiently disturbed? It's understandable. Because what we experience is that separation. And after a while, we absorb this other really big bad idea that the world is made up of dual realities. Of heaven and earth, of spirit and body, of time and eternity. And then the, the goal is to choose the right of those two versions. This leads us into all kinds of really, really tricky places. Because what we know about separation here is that it leads to fear. Remember, like, we belong to one another, but over time, we've fallen out of belonging. And in the distance of falling out of belonging, at some point we start to look not just like strangers, but then start to look like enemies. And then we start to posture ourselves like enemies. And that distancing, it happens in all kinds of ways. So fear sets in. Now, here's the thing. Fear is a great motivator for church attendance. I don't know why we don't use it more. There would be more people here if we would scare them. I'm not wrong. Like, all of TV is predicated on this idea that fear is addictive. Right? All 24-hour news is just fear cycles so that you buy more cars in commercial breaks. That's the motivation. And in fact, the church at some point learned, like, this is a really good marketing tool. We should tell everybody that they should be super afraid of everything all the time. And then that we have, like, just right under here, under the, under the chancel, under the stage, the secret. But you have to come here to get it. Fear sets in. So I did a little bit of, of Googling this week, which is always fun. And I just typed in, like, uh, apocalypse, rapture. Revelation, Armageddon, all the really fun words to Google, which I do not recommend this, by the way. It is almost impossible to find good quality research online when you're looking for the end times. Because you know what the internet is mostly made of is people who are really afraid of things, and they happen to be very good at getting their search results in the very top. So you're going to have to search like 17 pages in to find something that I would recommend to you as a reading material. Just don't Google it. But I did, um, because I... I'm okay. I made it through. And I found this guy who is uh, very much in this like fear base. It's all about to burn. The end times are here. I've drawn up a map. It's a big map. It's a very confusing map. And I can tell you which political leaders correspond to which parts of Revelation and who the beast is and who the dragon is and who Jezebel is and who the all of the heads of the beast. And there's the crown. Right? Like, oh, my goodness, it's so exhausting. Have you been in a church or been in a service where they're outlining all of the ways that Revelation corresponds to whatever is happening yesterday or last week or tomorrow. It's almost as if God said, you know what, we're going to give him a book. But this book is not going to be useful for at least 2,000 years. It's going to confuse everybody for a long time. But then, lo and behold, there's going to be some folks in Dallas, Texas, who crack the code. That's what happened. Someone cracked the code, put it in the footnotes of a Bible. That Bible became very, very popular. And then everyone read Revelation with the footnotes and said, this is obviously the only way to interpret the book of Revelation. This is what the end times mean. So I found this guy, top result on Google, and he's selling this set of CDs, which you know you're on the cutting edge of theology when you've got CDs to promote your newest uh, interpretation. I know I'm being mean. I don't care. Uh, 
And so he has this set of things called the gathering storm because you should always be afraid. The whole thing is about like we are just right on the precipice of everything falling apart. And you surely have just like moments before you tip over into it or before God rescues you out of it, raptures you out of it. Do y'all remember, I don't know, I don't remember when this was, so I shouldn't say do y'all remember because then someone will be like, I remember and that means you just called me really, really old or something. Um, But there was this story a long time ago called The War of the Worlds. I think there's a Tom Cruise movie about it. Uh, Yes? It was about Mars. I can't remember all the Tom Cruise movies. He's been in so many. But there was this uh, War of the Worlds, and at some point they were doing this radio broadcast series, uh, and Orson Welles wanted to try and tell this story in a different way. And so he decided, y'all know this story, he decided to just read this story over the airways on the radio, but he kind of reworked the script with some folks so that it took out all the like narration parts, it took out time, and made it feel like it was really happening in the moment. And if you turn the radio on, you might have thought like, wait, wait a minute. Are we like right now being invaded by Martians? And people really got concerned. Like there was mass panic that set in. And the next day uh, he was interviewed and he was kind of like, I, I, it was an accident. I didn't really mean for it to turn out that way. Uh, but there was this mass hysteria because people were hearing a bit of fiction and they were interpreting it literally. This is like a newspaper the next day in the Times. Radio listeners in panic, taking war drama as fact. Many flee homes to escape gas raids from Mars. Phone calls swamp politics and broadcast of Wells' fantasy. Whoo! That's not good. Not understanding the genre of a text you're reading or listening to can lead you in all kinds of bad directions. You know where I'm going next. Listen, I told you. Told you how it was going to be today. Um, I read these books. I love these books in high school because they're written in ways that are really, really riveting. Tim LaHaye uh, is, he's a guy um, who has certain ideas about the end times. And Jerry Jenkins uh, writes fiction and write, wrote about sports. And so they got together and they wrote this book, set of books about this very specific reading of Revelation that has to do with this, like, we all get raptured out. Um, this picture is actually from our library, like right there. Because you are contractually obligated as a church to keep a set of these in your building, whether it's a good idea or not. Um, Kurt Cameron starred in like some of the movies about it. That's why I was making fun of him earlier. Uh, you notice what's at the bottom here? I'm just going to make it bigger for you. Um... Yeah, it's in the fiction section. But this is a set of books that has radically altered the way that people read the times. There are nonfiction versions of this that these folks wrote that basically say, like, yes, we wrote this as kind of a a story, but this all corresponds to what's actually happening in reality. And it's like secular humanists, and it's Russia, and it's China, and it's America, and depending on which party has a president in power, that's the Antichrist. It's like all all that stuff. It's also full of religious violence in ways that if you read it as a story about the way you're supposed to posture your life, it can lead you in some really scary places. So I'm not a big fan of like burning books, right, Rini? We shouldn't do that. This is all part of our literature canon. So I do think that we should go add an extra warning to these books. Uh, So 
it's, you know, this book is a work of fiction based on a bad interpretation of Revelation, specifically in the Bible generally. Um, I, I'm, I am concerned and have been for quite some time about the way that our understanding of the end times influences our understanding of the now time. That if we believe this version of the story, which is that God has destined all of this for the fire, then that our job is to get our souls out of here. That it will cause us to live now in some really non-Jesus ways. This is the line that I think I want to hold on to. Ethics is lived eschatology. That what you understand about where God is taking things, it radically changes the way that you act in the world. Y'all, I do not have enough time today. Nope, I do not have enough time today to explain all of how this is working itself out right now. But I will say that there are folks with lots and lots of power and lots and lots of money and lots and lots of bombs who deeply believe that Christ's return is predicated on a hastening of the ruining of this creation, of wars never ceasing, of certain kinds of pollution never ending and in fact accelerating, all out of a reading that God is not deeply interested in all of this for any longer than we are here. And once we are gone, we being God's people, then the rest of it can do whatever it's going to do. It's really, really, it's really, it's like so... It's so dangerous. Now, what this has led some folks to is an abandoning of eschatology, of thinking about the end of all things in any constructive way because it just seems so strange or it seems so dangerous. And so we just let the whole thing go. What I'm asking us to do, always what I'm asking us to do here is take the bigger, truer story that scripture is telling and bring that into our center and watch the way that it clarifies and purifies our intentions and our actions in the world. So I'm going to tell the story again. This is not how God intended things. That we are forever divorced and separated from the reality of God that we would call heaven. Heaven is not understood simply as a place we go to one day when we die. That is not what the Bible tells us. I don't know of a space where Jesus or the apostles of the early church say to anyone on the street, if you died today, do you know where your soul would be tomorrow? That is not seen to be the concern. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is among you. Is in your midst. In the events of Jesus the Christ, the end of the ages has been visited upon us in the present. So that we can see as hence, as first fruits, as new birth, what it looks like when God's world is present in the midst of our world. Partially, not fully, because we are still waiting. And so there's a patience that it entails. But the dead have been raised. This is our central confession. There is this, oh, we've had this book before at the welcome desk. It's Wendell Berry's set of essays 
uh, the art of the commonplace. I, I just like Wendell Berry is well, he's like one of my favorites. Uh, he's an agrarian uh, theologian and farmer from Kentucky. And he is a friend of all of my very favorite theologians. And he writes a lot about everything we've been talking about today. Um, I want to read you just a little bit out of his essay called The Body and the Earth. He says it better than I've said it. And so I want you to hear his words. Part of what he is outlining here is how we take this, which is a tragedy, and turn it just into fact. Fact that we shouldn't really like challenge too much. For many of the churchly, the life of the Spirit is reduced to a dull preoccupation with getting to heaven. At best, the world is no more than an embarrassment and a trial to the Spirit, which is otherwise radically separated from it. The true lover of God must not be burdened with any care or respect for his works. While the body goes about its business of destroying the earth, the soul is supposed to lie back and wait for Sunday, keeping itself free from earthly contaminants. While the body exploits other bodies, the soul stands aloof, free from sin, crying to the gawking bystanders, I'm not enjoying any of this as far as this sort of religion is concerned. The body is no more than a lusterless container of the soul, a mere package that will nonetheless light up in eternity, forever cool and shiny as a neon cross. The separation of the soul from the body and from the world is no disease on the fringe. It's no aberration. It is the fracture that runs through the mentality of institutional religion like a geological fault. That means us. That means our histories. That means at various times the things that we believe. And this rift in this mentality of religion continues to characterize the modern mind no matter how secular or worldly it becomes. But I've not stated my point exactly enough, he says. This rift is not like a geological fault. It is a geological fault. It is a flaw in the mind that runs inevitably into the earth. And here is where we start to find that what we believe about the world, what we believe about God, what we believe about spiritual materiality, it changes the way that we plant our feet on the earth, the way that we touch other bodies, the way that we understand our own bodies and our cravings, the way we tend and care and love and nurture. This affects or afflicts substance rather neither by intention nor by accident, but because occurring in the creation that is unified and whole, it must, there is no help for it. The soul in its loneliness only can hope for salvation. And here it is, right? You take separation as a de facto fact. You take it just as the way things are. And then you start to think, well, in, in this separation, the only thing that really matters is getting me out of here into safety. Rather than it is our mutuality, it is our togetherness, not as enemies, but as friends. As belonging to one another and belonging to this creation that might in fact be the project that God is after. And yet, and here we go, let's make the turn together. And yet, what is the burden of the Bible if not a sense of the mutuality of influence rising out of an essential unity among soul and body and community and world? These are all the works of God, and it is therefore the work of virtue to make or restore harmony among them. The world is certainly thought of as a place of spiritual trial, absolutely. But it's also the confluence of soul and body, of word and flesh, where thoughts must become deeds, where goodness must be Enacted. This is the great meeting place, the narrow passage where spirit and flesh, word and world pass into each other. The Bible's aim, as Barry reads it, is not the freeing of the spirit from the world. It is the handbook of 
their interaction. The Bible is the handbook of the interaction between the spirit and the world. It says that they cannot be divided, that their mutuality and unity is inescapable. They are not reconciled in division, but in harmony. What else can be meant by the resurrection of the body? These things that appear to be distinct are nevertheless caught in a network of mutual dependence and influence that is the substantiation of their unity. Okay. This is what the Bible is about. This interaction between flesh and spirit, between God and creation, between our timeliness and eternity. And all of the tension that we feel inside of us when we lean into this story, it's because this story is holding together in a very tenuous unity the promise that these things might in fact belong to one another. This is the story that scripture has been telling across the whole thing. If you've been with us from the first sermon we gave, which is on creation, until this last one, which is on last things, it is the same story. So let me tell it to you quickly. And if you have a Bible, you can just like do this number and it'll count, right? Just like flip it and then flip it and you're done. It's the whole thing. But I have a lot of bookmarks, so I'm going to walk you through it. God has always been about moving from where God is to where we are. This is the good news. It is the good news that is present at the very beginning of Scripture, and it is the good news that echoes and reverberates each time Scripture takes a twist and a turn into a new version of the telling. Genesis 1 and 2 talks about this very fact, that we are made in what? In toveness, in goodness, in the image of godness, in everything belongsness, in the garden being placed in the center of the world, and God inhabiting our space. That all of creation belongs to God. And all of creation has the ability to speak to the glory of God. So that there is no place that should be devoid of the spirit. That all things themselves can, in fact, be sacred. Where we find things that are not sacred is because they have been desecrated. Not because they belong to some other realm of reality. And so this is how things are created. That God moves to where God is and brings that to where we are. In love, not in violence. You see it here. You see it in the Exodus, in the very beginning, when God's people are in slavery, right? There's been a separation and a rift that happens, and they cry out in the very early parts of Exodus. And this text says, and it's one of these sets of scriptures you should carry with you, it says that God hears their cry. God remembers, God sees them, God knows them, and then God moves toward them. And creation itself has begun to break apart because of disruption and sin and violence. And so God resets the plot and says, why don't you make a sanctuary? Why don't you make a tabernacle? Just right in the middle of the wild spaces. And in that space, I will dwell. Not only there, but you've got to see me at least somewhere. Right? You've got to find me again so that you can understand that I am in all of this. So they build the tabernacle. It's half the book of Exodus. At the end of the book of Exodus, this beautiful moment happens where God... The glory of God, the Shekinah of God, the presence of God moves from wherever God's realm is into the camp, into the wilderness. And the glory of God settles on the tent of meeting. This continues on. The tabernacle becomes a temple. David is king and David wants to build God a house, but God says, you cannot build me a house. You've, you've killed too many people. Uh, your son can build me a house. And so Solomon builds a home for God known as the temple in Jerusalem. 
And even in the building of the temple, it's in 1 Kings chapter 8. says, the Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness, but I built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. But in case we ever got confused, like this right here is God's only home, there's a qualification. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Even heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you, much less this house that I've built. This is the space where your name shall be. Oh, here in heaven, your dwelling place, heed and forgive your people. The temple, again, is God's present in micro, but only because people needed to see it somewhere so they could understand it was everywhere. God is not content to stay separate or stay removed, but continues to move toward. Now, the exile happens and the temple is destroyed and they are sent off into Babylon. And in that space, they have to figure out, is God present even here? Will God find us here when we don't have a temple or a tabernacle? And Isaiah gives this vision in Isaiah 6. Where the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is filled with the glory of God. Not just the temple, not just the tabernacle, but all places, even exile. And then Ezekiel picks up this same story. Tells the story of what it means to be separated from God. And tells the story of God's moving back toward creation visibly represented by the spirit and presence of God moving back toward the temple and settling again. It's this glorious image of when things will be set right. Because those prophets are telling this story, right? The one that Genesis, that Exodus, the whole Bible has been telling. That God is present and active and moving toward. It doesn't stop there. You get it in Matthew. As it is in heaven, so also on earth. You get it in John the word became flesh and dwelt among us and tabernacled among us. You get it over and over and over again. In the book of Hebrews, it talks about Jesus as the high priest that mediates this new covenant in a more perfect sanctuary, a final kind of atonement that sets all things right. You get to Revelation. And you get a line like Revelation 11. I'll read it to you. Revelation 11, there are these trumpets. Seventh trumpet, the angel blows. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Why is it that we assume what God has made and called good that we can forget or dispose of? Or why would we think that God would do such a thing? Why is it that we imagine we are the only things that God is concerned with? That God's salvation and setting all things right means only setting our souls right. That's boring. That heaven sounds boring. This world is full of beauty and pain. But the beauty speaks to the intentions God has always had for it. The beauty we find in ourselves when we love well. The beauty we find in nature when it is unspoiled. It speaks about the generosity overflowing from the heart of God. And the end of all things is an expansion of that, not a reduction of it. 
not a slicing off of everything that we understand is our world, so that all that is left is some unattached spiritual existence. The reason that this connection holds is because we believe in what Christ has done. We believe that there is one who can shuttle between realities, who can quite literally carry the goods of heaven into the realm where we are. So that in John's gospel, the verse that we all know so well, when Jesus says, for God so loved the world. The world, it means world, it's cosmos in the Greek. It's not for the God so loved us, God so loved everything. Not to condemn the world, but to save the world. Jesus shows us what that looks like. It looks like the cross. It looks like sacrifice. It looks like death being defeated, not by the weapons of this world, but by the posture that God always has towards creation, which is generous and affectionate. Christ stands at the center of our story because Christ connects the realities that we feel have been separated. This is the end. There is a reason that we don't do fear-based theology here. It's because I deeply believe that what Jesus is showing us is that we have nothing left to be afraid of. The book of Revelation is terrifying, but it's written for people who themselves were terrified. It's laying out what it was like to be in persecuted, occupied territory under the rule of the emperors of Rome. It tells us that the world is difficult, but also tells us that there is hope. It's a bit of resistance literature. We were talking on Thursday, and I'll end here. We are talking on Thursday in our, in our sermon prep group, which, by the way, if you show up here on Sundays and you're like, this stuff, I really wish we could have talked about this some more, then you should come on Thursdays before Sunday, and we'll talk about it some more. Because um, we talked about economy and politics and uh, a whole bunch of other stuff that we just don't have time for today. Um, but, but where's Michael Mann? Somewhere in the building? He's teaching kids. Okay, great. So I'm going to tell his story with no worry that he's going to correct me. Um, Michael's really thoughtful. And uh, at some point when we were kind of in the meat of the, of the uh, set of scripture and of where we were heading for on Sunday, he goes, you know, when I remember this really pivotal moment for me when I was engaging the Bible where uh, I picked it up and I read the first few pages he goes, and I flipped it, and I read the last few pages. And he said, I could feel what the story was trying to do in between. It filled me with hope and the possibilities of God. Now, I asked him, like, did you read this? This is when you were eight years old, right? Like, that's a weird kind of curiosity. And he goes, no, it was like in my mid-20s. Um, if you know Michael, he's like got that same kind of childlike wonder, which is lovely. You should know Michael and Sean. Um, it's a beautiful way to read uh, the, the beginning and the end. The beginning tells us something about God is taking things. In Genesis 1 and 2, when it says that God creates this world in its goodness, in its blessedness, in its glory, in its reflective qualities of how it can approximate to what God is up to in the world. God is not abandoning that project, but bringing it into some kind of completion. So that when you get to the end of this story, you don't get to and everything is gone. You get to and everything is new. 
you get to a new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to the very end. It's always a good place to end when preaching about the end. Chapter 21 of the book of Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, can you feel the movement? It's the same movement. It's the same arrow. See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples and God will be with them and wipe every tear from their eye and death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more for the first things have passed away. And the one who is seated on the throne said, see, I'm making all things new. Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, it is done. It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Three times I've cried thinking about this because the Bible holds together. The story is consistent. And the God we find reveals that everything is full of wonder. Abraham Joshua Heschel late Jewish theologian has this phrase I'll leave you with. He said, I didn't ask God for knowledge, didn't ask God for success or accolades. I asked God for wonder and he gave it. I think sometimes we ask God for too little. And we imagine that what God is capable of is as small as our imaginations. God does love us and will not leave us alone, but God loves it all, the whole cosmos. Salvation means creation healed. Salvation means things set to right. Salvation means that Hong Kong doesn't feel like it feels today. It means that economies will work differently. It means that politicians will behave differently. It means that police will no longer hit and bruise and kill those simply because of the way they are seen as enemy and not as belonging. The kingdom of heaven can be born now in us, through us, out from the space. Knowing that this is where God is taking things, it changes the way we live and move and have our being. It gives our lives a directional pitch, virtue that we can build up. So that as in heaven, so also on earth. So that as in heaven, so also in this country, in this state, in this city, in this building, in these homes, in this body. This, my friends, is good news. And it is the story of our scriptures. Would you pray with me? God, whatever you are up to in setting this story right, we want to be part of it. Heal inside of us the knowledge we have carried that is just simply smaller than what you are doing. Forgive us when we have bruised our own bodies, our own soil, creation, with no regard for your love and affection for it. Forgive our small loves and give us your big love. Fill us again with wonder like a child that in fact all things are possible. And those wounds that we carry, the little and big deaths that mark our bodies, our limps, our instincts, our reactivity, would you mend us? 
and let us know that more is mendable than we know. Love us as our theology approximates to the truth of the story you were telling. Love us until we can love you back and love what you love. Thank you for Christ that makes all things possible. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Pastor John.